Spring is in the air at Global Voice Broadcasting. Fresh new shows are hitting the airwaves every day. Shows about all the things that matter to you in your life. Music, fashion, celebs, and more. It's all here, and it's getting better every day. Only at Global Voice Broadcasting. My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. I can't live with myself if I don't desire myself, so I make a conscious choice to desire me, to choose me, daily. This powerful quote from a powerful article really struck me, and I reached out to the author who's joining me today. I'm so excited about that. Uh, I'm your host, August McLaughlin. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio. We are going to jump right in. LaCrista Greco is a writer, speaker, activist, and trauma-informed adaptive yoga instructor. She is also the founder and CEO of Guerrilla Feminism, which is awesome. It's a global digital activist network empowering feminists in action. LaCrista has her master's degree in women's and gender studies and has written for Exo Jane, Rebellious Magazine, for Women, Elephant Journal, Mind Body Green, Decolonizing Yoga, Girl Drive, Jezebel, and Ms. Magazine blog. She's spoken at colleges, universities, and nonprofits about digital activism, learning disabilities, Italianita, domestic and sexual violence, and yoga. LaCrista has published two books, which both sound fantastic. The first is an anthology called Olive Girls, Italian North American Women and the Search for Identity. And the second, a book of poems, is called Leftovers. I reached out to LaCrista after reading her wonderful Bitch Magazine article called The Complicated Dynamics of Disability and Desire. Thank you so much for joining me, LaCrista. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. As I mentioned a couple times already, I think, because I'm so excited about having you here, your article really struck me for so many reasons. It's beautifully written. And also, the the topic is so underexplored, and I, I loved the light you brought to it. I wondered if you would first share, when did you realize that you had these invisible disabilities? Sure. So, um I was in third grade when I was diagnosed with two learning disabilities. And the first, well, I was diagnosed with them at the same time, but the, um, one of them that I have is called dyscalculia, which is um, a common uh, learning disability. It's, it's known as sort of the math version of dyslexia. We hear a lot about dyslexia, which is a reading learning disability. Um, but we hear a little bit less about dyscalculia, but they're kind of similar in, in in, uh, in some ways. And then the other one is a language processing disability, where basically how I remember it being explained to me and how I explained it to other people is it's really hard for me to sort of um, to articulate what I what I have memorized or what I know in my head on paper or um, sometimes verbally, but more so um, on paper. So I was always a terrible test taker, and that was partially due to that learning disability specifically. So third grade was really a um, 
really hard time to say the least um, to sort of, you know, receive these diagnoses and um, receive them in a way that, or, you know, being, they were just, they were told to me in a way that was very kind of, um, you know, they're like, it was a bad thing and that um, it was just a, you know, very like nobody wants to have these and, you know, I'm not smart and I'm never going to be smart. And that's kind of how it was um, really talked about to me. Um, not from my parents, thankfully. I had a lot of great support there, but by school, you know, um, administrators and, and teachers. So that was really unfortunate. And um, so it's something that I've, you know, I started writing about um, several years ago because it was made for me to kind of take back that narrative and um, get that out there. I guess. Beautiful. And such an interesting time and complex time, I think, to learn something like that because third grade is Mm -hmm. kind of pre-puberty or almost puberty and your hormones are shifting and all these things are happening. And you actually shared in the article that you, you said that you were always embarrassed when you'd have to leave to like, quote unquote, regular class, that it was Mm -hmm. even worse after hitting puberty. What did you mean by that? So I, my school, I went to public school and um, we, they didn't practice uh, inclusion. So, which is kind of a, some schools are still not practicing inclusion. But anyways, inclusion is really about bringing all students within a class. So not separating based on learning styles. And there are proponents, you know, there are people for it and against this. Um, so my school did not practice inclusion. And I would be taken out of class, my traditional classes, to go to, like, special ed classes, basically. And after I hit puberty and kind of, um, you know, noticed boys more, I guess, um, I just remember feeling even more, like, the embarrassment really intensified, um, especially once I kind of would have crushes on boys. And um, I just felt in a lot of ways, and I write about this, piece that I felt really undesirable um, and just very like not um, not attractive and not um, which is like weird I feel weird talking about that as like you know I was like I don't know 12 you know when I went through puberty or whatever but it's like you do have those feelings and you know I couldn't ignore them and so it was really hard kind of figuring that out and um, navigating all of that and feeling like oh, I'm never going to get a boyfriend because I have these invisible disabilities and people think I'm stupid, and um, which, of course, is not the truth and wasn't the truth. But that's sort of what I um, learned from authoritative figures, um, unfortunately. And that's what a lot of, I think, students end up learning. Same situation. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredibly unfortunate. And mm-hmm. it's interesting what you said about being 12 years old. It's even though, you know, it's such a young, young age, it's also when things are a bit more black and white. So, right. I mean, totally. we think we're in love at 12, you know, it's <laughs> right, right. these really deep feelings. And that's why it's so important, I think, to, you know, to nurture self-esteem and body image and all those things. How was, mm-hmm. how was all of this affecting how you felt about your, your physicality or was it affecting your body image? Um, you know, it definitely did to some extent. I think, I mean, I think just growing up a girl in, in our society, you're, you know, you're, you're hard pressed to not be affected by, you know, body image issues in some way. Um, I think with the invisible disabilities that I had, um, 
I constantly felt like I was um, carrying around this really heavy secret and a physical disability. So it wasn't like I was in a wheelchair. I wasn't, um, I didn't have a cane or a walker or something that people could point to and, and, and visually um, recognize. And because it was an invisible thing, you know, I got a lot of sort of, um, I, I felt very like I was keeping this secret, but at the same time, people knew as well, you know, that I was in special ed and I had to leave class to go there. And So as you were moving into, you know, navigating teens and all of that mm-hmm. and being, you know, romantically attracted to others and all of that, how did the learning disabilities and, and feeling like you were alone, like you said, they were invisible. So mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily obvious to, to people. And I know at a certain point you confided in, in, in somebody, one of your peers. Mm-hmm. How did that affect you kind of going into high school? Um, well, it was still, it was, um, I didn't end up, you know, I wasn't in special ed classes in high school, so I felt kind of like this relief of just like, okay, like I can, I felt kind of, I remember thinking, oh, I can hide this better, you know, like that's just going into high school is such a terrifying time. And, um, but you know, there, I still, I had an IEP, an individualized education plan, which all, um, students who have special needs, um, have, um, by law. And so, you know, there were things that other students would notice that I would get more time on tests and um, things like that. And, and so it was hard still for me to kind of fly under the radar um, when a lot of kids would just say to me, like, why do you get extra time? Why do you, you know, get to take this test somewhere else? Why, you know, whatever. And um, so, you know, I, I did have an interaction, which I, I speak about in the piece, how, this boy who sat in front of me in science class asked me, you know, why, why do you get extra time? And I said, well, because I have a learning disability. And it was the first time I kind of like outed myself and I felt really terrified in that moment. But I also was like, you know, kind of felt like relief too. And he just replied, well, you don't look like you have a disability, Mm -hmm. Um, which like goes to show, of course, how, you know, teenagers we we don't know a lot about this that we're not you know that we don't go through I kind of I I didn't you know we take the time to explain to him because I was just like so amazed that I even said those words out loud to Mm. to, to appear that I you know kind of just brushed off his you know misunderstanding of the difference between you know a learning disability and, and a physical disability um but, you know, it, like, still that, that question or that comment from him always kind of just, like, rang in my ears. It's like, well, you don't look like you have a disability. And, you know, it, it gave me, in a, in a way, at that point, you know, it gave me a sense of pride because I felt like, oh, I can, I can get away with, you know, like, with this. Because I always felt like, even though I do invisible disabilities internally as a kid I always felt like I wore them like on my sleeve and people you know yeah so I almost felt a sense of weird pride about like having gotten away with something you know um so uh, that was really my first time where I like sort of came out about that to somebody and 
you know, it felt really good, but it was also kind of reminded me that, oh, I'm different than, than these other people. I, you know, I, a part of me really still wanted to sort of hide again because it was just um, having to, you know, say that to, to the world or to appear, you know, uh, you know, outing myself as having invisible disabilities was just really uncomfortable and unnerving. Um, but it really, um, yeah, it was also a good experience, I guess, too. But um, it kind of felt like I just wanted to, like, you know, slump further in my chair and forget about the whole situation. Sure. Yeah. I could see there being a lot of kind of conflicting emotions about it. I mean, that's such a hard time in life regardless. And then to have yeah. have all of those things happening at once. And I love that you explored also the ways that people with physical disabilities are discriminated against. And there's this really great quote you shared right. from Kayla Whaley. Uh, people mm-hmm. register disabled before they register woman. And the former always overrides the latter because in our obvious society, in our ableist society, a disabled body is necessarily a desexualized one, no matter what, though we are not desirable. And then yet, you brought up um, Kylie Jenner was featured in Interview Magazine, and there's a photo of her Mm -hmm. that you described very rightfully as sexy, glamorous, and blank. It was this very sexualized image, but she's in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Why were disabled um, activists upset by this image? Well, I mean... She's using the wheelchair as a prop, right? Like yeah. It's very much um, about the fact that she's not actually physically disabled. I don't know that she has any invisible disabilities, but, you know, we, we society knows she's not physically handicapped and does not need a wheelchair. So, you know, many um, uh, disabled activists were rightfully very upset about this because if you're going to, there's already not enough visibility for people with disabilities and so to just you know use a wheelchair like it's some kind of prop and you know put this famous person in it you know like it's it's fancy or it's you know like i said like it's sexy or something i mean which not to say wheelchairs can't be sexy but like you know we need to talk about like actually creating visibility for people who are actually in you know needing to use wheelchairs not people who use them as props and yeah in to sell magazines. And so, yeah, there were a lot of Yeah, absolutely. It, that makes total sense because it's, uh, mm-hmm. we need to see people who happen to be in wheelchairs versus the wheelchair is this, like you said, this, this extra, this prop, this thing to make it mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, controversial and cool or, or whatever it is. Right. And yeah, y- exactly. you mentioned that it's, you know, arguably it's, it's disability porn, which is a term that mm-hmm. I've heard before, but we haven't talked about much. So would mm-hmm. you speak to that? What exactly is disability porn? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, uh, I really like the term crypt drag, which um, is coined by um, a professor at UW-Madison. And it's really just this idea of, like, you're, you're dressing up as something that you're not. And um, you... The issue there is, at the end of the day, you know, Kylie Jenner can can get up out of that wheelchair. She does not need that wheelchair. But someone who actually needs a wheelchair, they they cannot they can't just get up out of the wheelchair and call it a day. You know, I mean that's part of them. And so, so that sort of dressing up is just a really um, 
you know, it's just a really kind of gross um, thing that I've noticed more and more it's kind of happening. And um, it's, it's, again, sort of fetishizing. And it's it's just not, you know, it's like if you want to feature um, wheelchairs or something, like feature, how about you feature the people who are actually, you know, use them and need them. Like feature actual people with disabilities, not people who, you know, are just, I mean, there are famous people that are in this, are you know, have disabilities too that you could feature. So, but those people still don't get you know as much visibility as someone like Kylie Jenner or you know whatever. Yeah, absolutely. It really all comes down to creating visibility for um, you know people who are marginalized. Yes. And that's something that I don't think we can do enough of as a society. And we, we don't do enough of it at this point. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, that's obviously why people were rightfully very upset about the Kylie Jenner um, magazine cover with her in the wheelchair. Just mm-hmm. it's like find someone who actually, <laughs> you know, has a physical disability and uses a wheelchair. Yeah, I mean, there's. That's it. That's all. It's not that hard. It's so true. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's not like an uncommon thing, and we we just need to see it see it as 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 normal as it is. Uh, Speaking of physical disabilities, the other day I chatted with our resident sex and relationships expert. There's this fairly common assumption that people with physical disabilities either can't have sex or don't desire sex or simply don't have it. So first of all, just what are just generally your thoughts on that sort of myth? Well, I mean, I think um, just like we're wired for connection from the cradle to the grave, I think we're wired to feel pleasure in our bodies, um, you know, at all circumstances of life, including end of life, you know, um, sort of advocating that, you know, even hospitals sometimes have larger beds, you know, because there's something about, you know, touching and caressing and connection. Um, so I think it's really important that, you know, we know with people with disabilities that unfortunately their sexual self-esteem often uh, is lagging, you know, lagging behind and certainly more impacted than just their general self-esteem. Um, and so I think it's really important for them to just feel entitled and empowered that, um, you know, there may be, because depending on the level of disability, modifications, uh, it, it may even sort of worst case scenario mean not penetration, but to importantly recognize that having pleasure and experiencing pleasure with a partner is something that's always on the table. Mm, I love that. I love that. And I love what you said about their sexual self-esteem, because when I was doing the um, orgasm MRI research, with Dr. Kamizarek, he told me that he got into the studies because basically through people who had various disabilities who were quadriplegic or paraplegic, they didn't even realize that they could orgasm, many of them. Uh, and so because I guess the vagus nerve is not affected by that kind of paralysis. So just knowing what your body is capable of and having permission, you know, giving yourself permission to to have pleasure is is so huge. And I actually received a question from somebody related to this subject 
uh, on a message board and she wrote, my husband is in the military and was injured in Iraq. I'm grateful every day that he lived against all odds and for his sacrifices for the country and for my family. I also want us to have a healthy bedroom life once he's able. He's lost use of both of his legs, but we can resume sexual activity after his upcoming surgery. That's all the doctors have told us by way of a follow-up care form, and I'm not comfortable asking questions where to start. Any thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, a friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Mitch Tepper, he himself has a spinal cord injury, and he wrote a book called Regain That Feeling, uh, Secrets to Sexual Self-Discovery. Um, and he's actually also got a Facebook page, Making Love After Making War, and he's working on a site, um, loveafterwar.org, because he's working on a documentary, and he's really actively trying to create this conversation, um, especially for those who've been impacted by war, and again, how it, it can immediately be impacting um, disability and, and sexuality. So I think, first of all, he's a great resource. Um, and that might be a first place to start to help her feel more confident and comfortable in terms of what questions to ask. Because having worked at like Sloan Kettering myself and um, in the hospital setting, you know, we would hope that doctors would be ideally more comfortable with the topic of sexuality um, and helping people understand um, what their options are. But I, unfortunately, a lot of times they're not. So I think it's really important that she can feel empowered to ask those questions. And if it's not the doctor themselves, it might be a social worker or, you know, do they have a sexual health program uh, available? But that I think going to Dr. Mitch Tepper's uh, site is probably a great place to start, but really encouraging and empowering her to um, move beyond that shyness and, you know, ask all the, take all the time she needs to ask all the questions that she has. I love that. That's such wonderful advice. And I know you've talked a lot about, uh, you know, communication with your partner and, and when things change really, uh, staying open to those changes and starting the conversation can be really challenging for, for a lot of couples. Is there a good place that you'd recommend starting uh, if, if the two of them have not communicated about it yet? Sure. I mean, I think um, it's just, again, it's like that exhale by starting the conversation. Whew, we've named the elephant, right? Um, because often, you know, when something feels difficult or hard, I see couples uh, avoiding left, right, and center. And, you know, that strategy really never works. So even just addressing and naming the concerns, the fears, because then you're in it together, uh, sort of united against, you know, what do we do next? But the with the um, sense of we're on the same page and, you know, again, the intention is we have the capacity to feel pleasure and we're just going to have to explore, you know, with modifications, the way, the different ways that it's going to look. And I think importantly, you know, people often feel like it's got to be a one heavy, big, definitive conversations. And it's really about just opening, putting it out there to realize it's going to be a series of conversations. Such wonderful advice as always, Dr. Megan. Thank you so much. I think these series of conversations she was mentioning, it's so important. It's not like you have one talk and, you know, especially because if you have one talk about a sexual issue that you're having or an intimacy issue, it puts so much pressure into that one conversation. It's kind of like sex ed. So I'd love to hear from you, LaCrista. I know that you did end up sharing more about your disabilities with partners and that was kind of a journey of itself. So how did that pan out when you did start to kind of open up and, and share? 
Um, it was really interesting because I, you know, for so long was convinced that, you know, my invisible disabilities meant that I was unlovable, that I was undesirable, all of these. And, it, you know, I started um, just telling the men that I date, not, not even if it really, you know, was an issue, because I, a lot of times my my invisible disabilities, they don't interfere with a lot of things, unless it's math or, you know, test taking or things like that. But, um, you know, when I would start talking to them about it, just because I felt like it was a part of, it's, you know, it's kind of a big part of me and it's something I want people to know about if, if I'm with them and if I'm close to them. And so, yeah, I, you know, I was met with a lot of great, um, just responses from a lot of the men that I've dated regarding my invisible disabilities. And I still had, you know, one or two who would kind of, you know, not fully understand it, but I had more of language to articulate, you know, and, and educate them on the issue. So that was really helpful and important. And most of the responses would be them, you know, saying like, Oh, okay. Like, whatever, like it's no big deal. Um, which, you know, was, was really great. But at the same time, I, I sometimes still feel like, you know, I push away these invisible disabilities for so long. And now I'm like, very much empowered by them, which is something I never thought I would, I would say or feel. And so now I feel like I, I want them to be a big deal <laughs> to people. And I want, like, I want them to, I want people to understand that, you know, yeah, it's not, you know, who I am fully. That's not what these disabilities, you know, are for me, but they are a part of me and they do, you know, add to who I am. And without them, I would be a different person. And so I do think, you know, um, having those conversations in my twenties and, and, you know, now my, my early thirties, like it's still, um, it still can be a little difficult and, and uncomfortable, but um, I feel much more empowered by the conversation and much more um, proud of sort of what I've excelled at and what I've been able to do, especially when I've been told by teachers and other people that I wouldn't out to certain these disabilities. So I kind of have, again, you know, taken back this narrative and have, um, reclaimed it and have used it in order to um, showcase my my uh, my empowerment and the things that I've I've been able to do and, and succeed at so I love that. That's really inspiring. It really is. And it actually made yeah. me wonder about the term disability and disabled. Mm-hmm. It sort of has a negative connotation, not just because of society's perceptions, which I, is certainly a huge part of not most of it, right. but simply yeah. the dis in there, like there's a missing right. something. I know I've heard people use the word different abled and, and mm-hmm. you know different kinds of terms. How do you feel about the term disability or disabled? Um, you know, I'm, I don't really like the term disabled. Like I, I would never probably say I'm disabled or that person is disabled. I think, you know, for me, I prefer like, um, saying that I'm a person with a disability or I'm okay with differently abled. I think it's a little kind of, um, it's a little corny for me, but, um, but I think, you know, if someone else 
who is differently abled or disabled uh, enjoys that. I think that's great. I mean, I think just like how we ask people their pronouns, I think, you know, if you find out someone has a disability, um, you should kind of ask just sort of, okay, do you, if I refer to you, should I refer to you as disabled or differently abled? Or how would you like me to sort of refer to you in, in this context or, you know, whatever it might be? Um, cause I think that can always be helpful just to kind of gain some knowledge and awareness from someone. Absolutely. I love that. And I love that it's about asking questions when we don't know, because I know people want to be supportive of others and mm-hmm. maybe are concerned that they'll say something that's offensive without meaning it. Right. So is that the best way to approach those conversations with curiosity or do you have any tips for talking to a loved yeah. one who reveals that they have some kind of disability? I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I would, of course, steer away from is asking anyone, like, how they got, how, like, how are you disabled or how, you know, and that's kind of, because, again, for a lot of people, we we don't know, you know, I mean, I don't know, I, I just, this is how my birth wired, you know, and, and people with um, physical disabilities don't always know either, even if they maybe had a traumatic accident too. Um, you know, you don't want to have to ask, you don't want to ask somebody that the first time you meet them or even the first couple of times and have them delve back into the trauma of what may have happened to them. Um, so definitely don't ask about that kind of a thing. Um, but I think just sort of being present with, um, the person and, you know, reiterating to them that, you know, thank you for sharing this with me and like, you know, I'm really supportive of you and um, I, you know, you know, maybe curtail how I do things so that it can be more helpful for you and your learning style or whether it's for, you know, someone who's physically um, disabled. Um, so I just think really, you know, trying to just talk with the person one-to-one and, you know, letting them really lead the conversation too so that, um, they can really kind of um, feel in control and feel empowered by um, how much they want to tell you. So. I love that. And I love that you just shared again what you mentioned earlier so poignantly that they're a person first. And so mm-hmm. when we come to somebody and say, wow, how did you get this way? That is so much not right. about the person. And that's all about your right. own sort of morbid curiosities or... Right, exactly. And yeah, it's not really a compassionate way of going about it. And I love what you said about, you know, asking how I can be supportive, what kind of language they prefer. Mm-hmm. I think that shows a lot of a lot of care. It's wonderful. And I so yeah. commend you for speaking out on such important topics. I know that there are many topics that you explore in your writing and in your career. Mm-hmm. And after reading the article, I realized that you had founded uh, Guerrilla Feminism, which I follow on Facebook and I just think is Yay. completely <laughs> badass. So before I let you go, would you share what is Guerrilla Feminism? Sure. Um, it's a global, um, it's a registered nonprofit. We're a global resource network for feminist activists and I started it in 2011, and it's just gotten really, really. And we're on Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, Instagram. We're all over social media, so um, please check us out. Awesome, fantastic! Well, easy to find and full of wonderful insight. Thank you so much again for joining me today. Sure, thank you so much for having me. 
definitely check out Gorilla Feminism. Guerrilla Feminism is a global feminist resource network for activists. Their mission is to empower feminists and activism in their communities globally. So great. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Pinterest, everywhere. To learn more about LaCrista personally, go to lacristagreco.com. You can also find her all over social media. What an awesome, awesome guest. And she was very patient. I hope that the sound was okay for you all. We're having some technical issues today, but the content is so important. And I hope you were able to get some wonderful takeaways about respecting other people and getting a perspective on how all of our, you know, things that make us unique also can, you know, interplay and will interplay with our sexuality and our relationships and whatever it is that's unique about us. If it may make us feel more alone at times. It also makes us pretty extraordinary, usually, in a lot of ways. And her voice just brought so much light to that. I'm so grateful. Special thanks also to The Pleasure Chest, a truly spectacular one-stop shop for sex toys, lube, and more, who helped make this episode possible. You can stop into one of their stores if you're in L.A., New York, or Chicago, or shop at their website, thepleasurechest.com. They are fabulous. If you attend one of their free workshops, which they offer Routinely, you also get 15% off your in-store purchase, which is so, so rad. For more from Dr. Megan, be sure to check out greatlifegreatsex.com and keep those Ask Dr. Megan questions coming. Or if you have questions for me or both of us, send them our way. If you're enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. If you think this episode may help a friend, please do share it. We just never know who we might help. For extras and a whole lot more, come and hang out with me at augustmclaughlin.com. I'd love for you to join my personal posse. Thanks so much for listening and have a beautiful girl boner embracing week.